So conversation started up today on Teams. Mm-hmm. The question came up, is a hot dog a sandwich? It's not. It's a hot dog. Two totally different things. Why is a hot dog different? Because the bread's connected. So does the bread, being the container, have to be on either side? Yeah, two separate pieces. That's why it's a sandwich. Because it's sandwiched together. But what about like a wrap? That's just a wrap. Or a burrito is not a sandwich? No, those are burritos. What if you had a taco and the hard shell broke? The bun can split on a hot dog. It's still a hot dog. It's construction intent. But like a sub sandwich is not a sandwich. No, it is. It's two separate pieces. Except when you go to Subway, they only cut like a sliver and they, it's actually built within it. That's still bread, though, that's being sliced to create a sandwich with. Like a hot dog. Yeah, we don't slice the bread. It already comes like that. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 269. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Uh, We want to thank each of you and give a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can go to find out more about this episode, this show, the show host, other shows on the network, other show hosts on other shows on the network, etc. You see where this is going. But we'd love for you to go check out things over there. Uh, Nose around a little bit and you will notice something called the TPS report up in the top navigation. If you click on that, it's going to ask you for your name and email address. All we plan to do with that is send you an email each Monday morning, five articles to start your week. That's it. That's all we plan to do. We're not trying to sell you anything or convince you to do anything. Just a quick, simple email that you'll find in your inbox on Mondays with some links to some stories that uh, may give you some things to think about for the week. So uh, we'll pause for just a second while you go and do that and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, Reed, let's talk a little bit about digital health. I think that you and I have talked about different aspects of digital health, telemedicine, remote patient monitoring. As we're moving into the third year of the pandemic. Oh, boy. 
Yeah, I know. The whole concept of digital health as an industry is shifting. We thought it would be good to talk a little bit about some of the digital health trends that are happening. It's interesting, right? Because we're getting outside of just the purview of marketing and communications. You know, this is digital more broadly across the organization. But I think if we, as we've talked about it in recent history, or really since we started the show, it's a little harder to discern digital marketing from just digital, I guess. Uh, Just like we're talking about, it's harder to draw the line between marketing and some of the other departments within the organization. Obviously, we get involved through the work that you and I do about helping to guide the people that are interacting with our various digital properties to these digital health solutions, be they telemedicine, be they your portal, whatever it might be. I think that kind of speaks to this trend about delivering care that's more accessible, scalable, and ultimately, as we've talked about before, equitable, using digital channels to get people to engage better with their health. We're going to start today diving into an article that we found called Digital Health Trends to Watch in 2022 that was actually published by a legal firm called Morgan Lewis. They provided a really nice overview or summary of some of the major trends that they're keeping an eye on that are impacting the digital health industry. So the first one on the list is always starts with regulatory developments. Yeah. Because as we know, digital health is always sort of a slave to how we regulate those tools. The reason why telemedicine expanded over the pandemic is because we made the regulations a little bit more lax to allow for widespread adoption. This article highlights a couple of regulatory developments to keep an eye on. The first is the FDA is providing some guidance around clinical decision support software. It's not new. They've done some guidance before, but they've actually classified decision support software as being on what they call the A list of top prioritizations that they need to provide guidance for. But there's more guidance that they're doing around other things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, around pre-market submissions, and how do we actually assess those. They're even getting into things like cybersecurity, software as a medical device, and software in a medical device. And with these great acronyms, software as a medical device is S-A-M-D, and software in a medical device is S-I-M-D. So the whole thing here is that FDA's enforcement went to the backside a little bit because of the focus on COVID-19 matters. Well, now they're starting to come back and they're coming back into an environment, a digital health environment that has tremendously exploded over the past couple of years. The next one on the list, which again, we've, we've actually talked about quite a bit recently is some things in the virtual space. So you think about telehealth, remote monitoring, and they even call out controlled substances, teleprescribing, which we haven't actually talked about. A big uptick in 2020 relative to that's you know the only way you could see your physician to some extent. The, the virtual channels leveled off to some degree in 21, but certainly will continue to be a complementary form of care they talked about. So there's really two battleground issues uh, on a federal level, whether new or only established Medicare 
patients can receive telehealth services and whether audio-only telehealth services may be covered. We get into some of the, the nuances of like, well, how are we actually connecting with folks? We talked about this, what, what I don't know, it wasn't too terribly long ago about UCSF or somebody on the West Coast charging for uh, physicians corresponding via email, you know, and, and through uh, my chart and that kind of thing. So it, it's interesting, right, of just kind of what this all all looks like as it, as it comes down. But remote patient monitoring, certainly a big deal. We will continue to see the need to move outside the brick and mortar of the hospital. So hospital at home and, you know, those types of things, which, you know, we used to call wearables, but now we're talking about kind of remote patient monitoring and different ways to, you know, provide and receive care and even recover. And then we get into this idea of teleprescribing, which honestly I haven't really even thought too much about being able to, you know, prescribed controlled substances via telehealth technologies is anticipated to be a divisive topic when the pandemic winds down. Interesting things that they call out in here where, you know, we've had a lot of restrictions waived, certainly uh, over the course of the pandemic. As things continue to wind down, hopefully they continue to wind down. A lot of this stuff's got to be uh, readdressed. Another thing that to keep an eye on, again, keep in mind that people who wrote this article are litigators in this space, and they say privacy is becoming a big thing. Even recently, the, these past few weeks, we've been dealing with data breach and security issues. Those are continuous themes that we're seeing across all of digital health. The Federal Trade Commission uh, has a September 2021 20, policy regarding health breach notification rules. How it all plays out here is that Privacy and data security is still remains a huge, huge initiative. Run that against what some certain states are implementing for data privacy laws that are going to take place in 2023. Just in 2023 alone, there's going to be the California Privacy right, Rights Act, the Colorado Privacy Act, and the Virginia Consumer Data Privacy Act. Those laws contain certain healthcare-related and even HIPAA exemptions, but they basically apply to consumer-facing digital health products in general. All of this together creates a whole new landscape where organizations have to focus in on how do their digital health solutions comply with data privacy and data security in an environment where there's more and more digital health solutions that are part of the patchwork ecosystem that we're building. Next on the list, investments in direct-to-consumer health care. I don't know how we don't continue down this path and, and people continue to invest in. A couple of call-outs in here. The 2022 State of Mental Health in America report notes that mental health in the United States continues to worsen. Throughout the pandemic in the last few years has been a slow but growing acceptance of the importance of mental health or a focus, I guess, on mental health. And so you, you've seen this some with athletes coming out and talking about depression and anxiety and things that they've dealt with. And, you know, so again, the acceptance being, you know, it's becoming a little more mainstream or people are starting to become okay with the idea that like, like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not weird, right? And so you're seeing more people talk about it. So what it's doing is obviously spiking the opportunity for, you know, this direct-to-consumer health care. They're talking here about text-basing therapy apps and, you know, focus on being able to these underserved communities, you know, get some of this uh, into them. We'll also see, they say in here in 2022, continued investment in the formation of companies to focus on direct-to-consumer healthcare, telemedicine, health IT, you know, data structure, you know, et cetera. 
also the importance, you know, if you think about this, uh, a couple of stats they caught here, six in 10 adults in the United States have a chronic disease with four in 10 having two or more chronic diseases. So again, telehealth companies more likely to continue to expand and try to address a lot of the chronic health issues such as diabetes by providing a more affordable option for quickly diagnosing patients as well as the ongoing management of those chronic conditions, right? But again, with this widespread uh, adoption of digital health solutions, it's also caused some problems. And one of the other trends that they're seeing is sort of the crackdown on fraud and abuse. We've heard a little bit about telehealth and some of the abuses that are out there, but there's been some significant shifts in the way we're starting to address that. There was a national strike force takedown where the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Health, and other and the Human Services Office of Inspector General and other enforcement agencies are focusing on combating fraud in digital health, particularly around fraud in telehealth. That happens a lot. As we talked about teleprescribing before, is there is some fraudulent activity happening there? That's a trend that they're keeping an eye on. Additional audits and uh, fraud investigations are now looking into the overuse or increased use of telehealth services during the pandemic, even overcharging, so to speak. Some of these things are kind of coming through all on the same point where, again, where the this digital health marketplace is expanding, obviously more room for fraud and abuse. Next one on the list, digital health contracting. So they, they call out in here, AI, machine learning, big data, and the fact that it'll continue to become more essential and ubiquitous, I guess, you know, we'll find it everywhere, you know, forcing parties to negotiate some challenging issues. So, you know, prior collaborations, they say, may have involved circumstances where uh, embedded or integrated software applications or tools, they were simply designed to achieve, you know, a particular functionality and pretty clear expectations didn't require a ton of, you know, groundbreaking technical advancements, as they put it. Software developers and partners may have seen somewhat interchangeable. The work product may have been pretty easily maintained if a copy of the source code was provided and the software may not have needed uh, significant modifications over time. So the shift they talked about, you know, from a tool that is is custom built to a key opaque, you know, embedded technology could lead to one, further strategic investment and acquisition activity in order to integrate and control uh, AI-related research, development, know-how, et cetera, and or heavily negotiated exclusive agreements in order to maintain a competitive advantage. A lot of this stuff makes a ton of sense, but you know, as time goes, we'll see, uh, I guess, where that investment is and what people you know, try to hang on to from an IP perspective for that competitive advantage. So the last trend of the seven trends that they kind of outlined here is still labor and compliance with COVID-19. There's been a lot of disruptions of the pandemic, and we've heard a lot about, you know, like rises in, in all the variants, but we also have heard at the same time about vaccine mandates in healthcare. There, there is legislation that is going on at a statewide level to look at if vaccine requirements are mandatory or not. More than a dozen state legislatures have passed bills aiming to limit an employer's ability to mandate vaccination requirements. But you also have to remember that in the light of the Supreme Court's ruling 
they actually stayed the, the fact that healthcare workers can be under the enforcement of a vaccine mandate. So as we start to look at that, that's all going to play out. How does vaccine mandates occur? What about boosters? And we're going to see a lot of legislation occur at both at the state and federal level to start to address that. And that's one of the things that's going to be pretty significant in our industry. But moreover, when we look at return to work, many businesses coming back to in-person operations, that's going to also create some logistics of how are we going to address this with remote work, with COVID-19 testing, with vaccinations? How is that all going to work together? So we're going to see some labor and compliance and COVID-19 things kind of play out and impact digital health in general. This is what this firm, Morgan Lewis, kind of outlines as some of the seven major trends that can impact our digital health industry. Now, when we get back from the break, Reed, you and I are going to talk a little bit about is the digital health bubble bursting? But we'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. We're bursting bubbles now. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. You know, this isn't a real estate trend uh, or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, you do wonder kind of where all this is headed and is it headed there too quickly? I don't know. But we found an article, Will the Digital Health Bubble Burst? It's a lot to say in a row. But anyway, let's let's talk through this for a second. This article originally was on modern healthcare, and, and you can find, I'm sure, a lot of things around this topic on the internet. But one thing they call out of the 18 digital health companies that went public, 18 that went public on the U.S. stock exchange in 21, only two companies increased the value of their original price. It's not ideal, no. I don't think. I'm not one, I don't know, I don't pretend to know a lot about uh, IPOs and whatnot, but I'm pretty sure that's not the goal. Yeah, that's not the goal. That that feels like that is the trend of a bubble potentially bursting here. And so in this article, they actually asked some experts that do know more, more than you and I do, Reed. For example, Jacob Efron, he's a director of Redpoint Ventures. He says that from his lens, he's looking at it from where the investments are going from a financial perspective. He calls out that investors really want to work with these companies, especially those that tend to be growing quite quickly. But where the problems arise can happen in the later rounds. Everyone wants to invest in early rounds when the companies are growing, but in the later rounds, there may not be that much growth. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And couple that with sort of the uncertainty in the public markets in general right now. He says it's unclear whether investing just before an IPO is the best return of your money, or is there any contraction in the market that occurs after an IPO? 
Is this where we say that uh, we're not providing advice? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know, man. I, this is just such a, a wild thing. I, I think you see, you know, again, the inflection point, everybody jumping into the space, creating interesting things. I think you'll see consolidation, certainly, between all these. I mean, I don't know how you don't. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And so additional investors have kind of indicated just that very thing, Reed. Alyssa Jaffe, who's a partner in Seven Wire Ventures, they've invested in companies like Livongo and Transparent and Higgy. She doesn't see the wave of funding slowing down anytime soon. Funds are still well capitalized. In fact, uh, Alyssa says that we've just passed the limit of how big these companies can get, and they're only getting better. She calls out, let's not talk about bubbles right now. That's not productive. Ask, what value can we get and what value can we use? Because these organizations are getting bigger and bigger. And if you can get a lot of value, if you can execute it right, some of the areas that she says to focus in on are areas around women's health, behavioral health, and companies targeting chronically ill populations, and particularly those that need remote patient monitoring, by the way. Okay. So women's health, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's where everybody focuses, I guess, to some extent, regardless of the topic. And then I guess earlier, you know, we talked about the idea of chronic disease, chronic illness, you know, something that that people are constantly looking at and managing on an ongoing basis. So I think you couple some of these areas together and that that is, I'm sure, where you'll continue to see people focus, certainly. Absolutely. And I mean, it makes sense. Behavioral health, we know that's a crisis. We know that chronic ill patients and those with remote patient monitoring, those are really great use cases for for digital health. But moreover, other investors, such as Sebastian Sager, he's a CEO of Johns Hopkins-backed digital therapeutics platform, says the availability of funding has been huge since the pandemic. In fact, the pandemic has woken up investors. And they see an opportunity to make healthcare more efficient and convenient. And Sebastian predicts that this is going to continue into 2022. Here's a quote that he says here. Venture capitalists have done well over the past 10 years. And the bigger players want to be part of these smarter valuations that happen earlier in the funding cycle. There were bigger VCs entering earlier funding rounds with larger check sizes. And that's still what's happening. Bigger VCs. There's a lot of opportunity here. Uh, they talk about increased consolidation. I mentioned that a minute ago. It says, according to Digital Health Business and Technology, there were already 65 M&A deals in digital health in the first quarter of 20. We're not even through the first quarter, are we? We're close. We're not quite. Uh, up from 63 in the first quarter of 21. So we've, you know, we've already surpassed last year's Q1. So I, I think you will. I think you will see that I, again. I don't know how you don't, and it probably makes sense to the consumer as well uh, to kind of pull some of this stuff together. And Mr. Efron from before, as we talked about, Zach. Um, <laughs> exactly. Sure. Jacob Efron. He actually indicates that we're starting to see many digital health companies starting to buy others. In the coming years, there's going to be a shift towards value and quality. And so there's so many options right now as employers, healthcare systems are being overwhelmed. He thinks that he will see digital health companies that rise above the rest and provide better healthcare start to stand out. And consolidation will continue. In fact, consolidation, he predicts, will be key to this. So that's kind of interesting world. So 
are we on a bubble, a digital health bubble? Read, there's a lot of activity going on in this space. I think it's interesting for us to think about this. While you and I are on the healthcare provider space, there's a lot of things happening on the, in the digital health industry. I think it'd be really fascinating to see how my role, your role, kind of this industry evolves over the next 18 months. You know, I, I think we've long departed from the days of social media and websites and things like that. Those are all necessary and part of the equation, certainly. But this is where everybody's focus is headed, certainly uh, still to the consumer and kind of consumer facing side of it, I guess. But yeah, this is where we're headed for sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, to learn a little bit more about where things are headed, I actually had recently sat down with and had a conversation with my good friend, Ann Stachahar. She's been on the show before. She is a person that kind of keeps her finger on the pulse of what's happening in the digital health space and also what's happening in the healthcare provider space and where that intersection occurs. She was recently at the Vive conference. You may have heard about that. It was a big conference down in Florida. She's constantly kind of keeping track of what's happening. And we sat down and we talked about where is digital health going from her perspective? And moreover, what are some of the challenges that health IT companies are facing as well as health systems are facing when they start to explore digital health. And it was a really fascinating interview. So after the break, we'll go to that interview, we'll listen to her, and then Reed and I will be back to close up the show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I'm delighted to have on a good friend of mine and someone that I've known for so many years. In fact, Anne, I started working with you when I first got into healthcare. My dear friend, Anne Stajahar. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be back and, and catch up with you again. We go way back. I think that was more than what, 15 years ago, Anne? Has that, yes, does yes, that seem right? it was 15 years ago, at least, that we first met and uh, joined forces and have been uh, comrades ever since in the digital healthcare world. You know, some people listening in, they may not know about you or your background. So why don't we first start with you sharing a little bit about where you came from, what you've done, and what you're currently doing. Sure. You know, for me right now, I'm, I'm really a growth strategist and have been working in the Mediterranean space, um, as I see that as like the closest frontier that you can get to the patient in their daily habitual lives. For, you know, many years, I've been in the transparency and digital healthcare space with health grades, worked as well at the advisory board as a, a partner there into the acquisition with Optum, where I was on the digital strategy consumerism, Optum advisory services team. Since then, I've worked with multiple startups in digital transformation, you know, where are they going, proper product market fit, and scaling into this uh new universe of digital health and, and what does it really mean? That's a really good question. And probably the first question I'm going to ask you about what is the current state of the digital health and uh, what does that actually mean? The 
silver lining, right? I think we've talked about the silver linings of the pandemic. The reality is, is that we had um, this huge transformation that happened and this forced transformation that happened of people really getting online, going digital, being able to communicate digitally with their physicians, the telemedicine movement, and this ability and forced transformation that happened because of this pandemic just really changed everything. I think that we were seeing some incentives from the government and CMS billing and coding for digital, whether it was remote patient monitoring or um, even telemedicine visits. And I think we've got a ways to go to see where it really plays out in reducing the total cost of care and adding that value. But, you know, there's no doubt that digital health in the past three years has just rapidly changed. And right now, it was interesting. I was um, at the Vive uh, conference, a brand new conference uh, down in Miami Beach a few weeks ago, and everyone was really focused on remote patient monitoring and patient engagement. Those were certainly the two standout themes. The reality, too, that there is government support and billing, I think, behind it caused some of that. You definitely saw that. And then what comes next, but really like these nouveau models of healthcare and retailization of healthcare with primary care practices in some instance, or even like at-home health care that is happening outside of the hospital. And the ability for the consumer to go directly because access and convenience and then quite honestly, their nimbleness is, is giving them a leg up. Before we go there, let's, let's, let's kind of look back, though, because I think you're right. The pandemic has done a lot of things, right? And we know the use case of telemedicine being like, you know, I, I often refer to it as the golden age of telemedicine these last three years. But digital health has been around for a very long time. When I look back, I think sort of the explosion of digital health through the pandemic was caused by a couple of things. One, it was obviously by necessity, right? We needed to solve some of those problems for the consumer, for the health systems, for the people that deliver care. They needed ways to stay in touch through digital solutions. But I also saw that the government did a lot to kind of break down the barriers of adoption of digital health. As we're kind of now in the third year of the pandemic, I hate to say that, I know the government is starting to think now about maybe tightening that back up. Do you think regulation is going to kind of drive where we're headed? There is no doubt. I mean, even in the RPM reimbursements, they have dialed those back a little bit, you know, and, and taken a little bit of a percentage and a, and a cut off of the initial early adopter rate. I think that you've seen the extension of telemedicine, but again, it still hasn't proven itself out in terms of reducing total cost of care and connectivity until we're seeing some longer term proof. And then two, post-pandemic proof that it can help with chronic conditions. I mean, quite honestly, we were dealing with the crisis of the pandemic. That's not to say that telemedicine is going to help chronic disease patients, we, you know, like with diabetes, we see it playing in diabetes first, but you know, what about congestive heart failure? What about COPD? Anything else? I think that still remains to be seen. Additionally, what you have is a younger generation as well that is like, they only want to go digital, right? And they only want to be seen with the access being kind of their priority and top of mind in getting to a doctor and urgent care, where the relationship 
with a physician may not matter as much because you could be bouncing around living in an Airbnb remotely or in, in different places now that we all work from home. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that with our workforce, right? It's like everybody's going remote and you hear about travel nurses, but you also hear about this rise of like virtual nursing and virtual physicians, right? And there's a whole niche that's being built. We're in this new world. What's interesting is that there has been some advancements in digital health through the pandemic that are kind of surprises to us, things that we weren't even aware of that kind of came out of nowhere. And I do think that the telemedicine companies in general, this stuff has been building. So fortunately, when COVID happened, we weren't completely caught flat-footed. We had just been caught with lack of adoption. You know, there certainly were companies that were out there waiting and thinking that we were going to be able to move there, but it was really going to take the pandemic to push it. And did they have the resources and things like that in place? Or did they have something that they maybe had in their back pocket that they didn't even realize until the pandemic hit? And I think the ability for some of these digital health companies to really pivot, and you know, it's hard for the really big companies to pivot. So these smaller, nimble companies potentially to be able to really catch fire and pivot was what shot up valuations. And what made a lot of successes for some of these companies now, now, whether or not this really comes back down to earth in the reality of day to day after we get through the COVID crisis remains to be seen. But gosh, it was probably really nice if you were uh, a part of that rocket ship for a while and you made, you made hay. I think there is that sort of belief that Smaller organizations are more nimble than bigger organizations and in the startup space. But is that where you're starting to see now, now that we're kind of at this stage in in where we're at and we're kind of getting back to kind of pseudo normal or whatever the new normal will be? Do you think that where things are trending towards or do you think is there going to be a kind of a reckoning in the in the healthcare Smaller space? Smaller companies aren't that small anymore. I mean, when you look at the deal flow. And you look at where the investments are. The decade ago of like a seed round and an A round of three or four million, and and that doesn't exist. I mean, you have companies at A rounds getting $20, $50 million now um, because they have their pitch right. They have product market fit. They quite honestly, so many people are investing in startups. To me, a startup is not $20 million of investment. And just the number of companies in comparison to a decade ago, you know, the health systems are seeing 5,000 different vendors call on them versus, you know, before it used to be a handful. And we, and we had it much easier in our early days, Chris, in terms of breaking into the health systems and even getting audience and even the health systems have shifted in terms of the way they're buying with their innovation departments or the VCs themselves that they stood up and, and what measures new companies will have to uh, go through. One of the things that I had heard for quite some time was a lot of the investors didn't want to actually invest in companies that were calling on the health systems. Oh, wow. Because they knew that, oh my God, the sales cycle is so arduous and long and so complicated and interoperability Uh and EHR integration and all of those things that were just so painful and getting a deal done were prohibitive. But, you know, I think a lot has certainly changed in the interoperability world and the new ecosystems where you have the redoxes and you have players that are allowing us to plug and play easier into the EHRs and the EHRs actually becoming marketplaces where hospitals go and they're able to, you know, buy. It's become table stakes, certainly. 
to be integrated with the EHR. But we still face a long road, you know, as a small startup with adoption and the buying cycles at a health system. So I think you saw the investors double down in organizations that were remote, that were nimble and want to offer providers as well. And the ability for the consumer to go more, you know, direct to the provider in retail models like a ChenMed or, you know, Oak Street, um, more one medical style for primary care. What you're kind of talking about here, Anne, is that there's like this, the traditional barriers that have made it hard to create digital health solutions that are integrated with health systems are starting to be solved, like the interoperability, creating these marketplaces, as you discussed. So that kind of puts us in a whole new world where suddenly innovation can happen from many, many different places, many disruptive places. I think that's probably why we see things, big things like Amazon Care partnering with Teladoc to like create, you know, virtual health across all of their Amazon Prime members. But I'm afraid that that might be a little bit of a bubble. Am I incorrect in in thinking about it that way? No doubt. No doubt there is a bubble with all the investment dollars and everything that are out there that has been created. I do think you've got some later stage companies, they have some larger seed rounds that like at a C, you know, getting 100 um, 150 million dollars where they're actually now in a buy mode where they're going to go out and do some tuck-ins and some roll-ups and buy some of these earlier stage companies to have the assets. We're at a very different point of some of the investing. And even at a C round, I think what's, you know, they can't, they've gone as far as they can and they've gotten a little bit bigger on innovation. And in order to grow, they need to add solutions because they were initially a point solution when they started. So you see a lot of, you know, early point solutions, but now it's time for verticalization and to become more meaningful. And I think at the end of the day, there will be C round companies that don't make it and A round companies that get quickly snatched up as well. It's, it's a different game than it was, you know, a decade ago, five years ago, but I think you're going to see a lot more verticalization of these point solutions, even in companies like Ateladoc did with their acquisition of Livongo and being able to roll up, you know, behavioral health. There's a lot, a lot of behavioral health companies that definitely exploded during the pandemic, but does that actually get acquired and and become part of another solution in in a full vertical kind of primary care ambulatory environment? for some larger players. So consolidation is coming. There is no doubt. It sounds to me like it's it's almost cyclical. In the time that we've been in this space, Anne, I have seen, you know, that there's been this sort of innovation happening at small levels and then consolidation and then it splinters off again and then consolidation again. Are we kind of coming back to the we're going to start to be building these large innovative organizations again that are just basically acquisitions of all the small startups? Yes, I think so. And they're going to be digital. They're going to be digital first. You know, it's going to be the acquisitions and the roll-ups of all of these digital organizations that can provide the care with the nimbleness and the interfaces that the patients really want with hopefully less administrative burden because the connections have been made to make things go faster. The insurers are stating that they want this, you know, they want to make it easier for the consumers to be able to access care and claims burdens and things that are out there are astronomical. But, you know, when, when the claims get paid faster, that means the insurance company holds on to its money for a shorter amount of time. 
Right. You know, it, it'll be it'll be interesting. The one other trend that I've been seeing that's interesting is all the UK companies and European companies that are coming over. Why? Because they know how to do value based care. Um, they know how to manage, you know, populations much better than we do because that's what they live on. <laughs> right. Um, and so you see a lot of the UK models coming in. You see the trend towards value-based care. We're finally pushed and we're finally moving there. I think they were saying 68% of almost all health systems are now looking for value-based care arrangements. Coming out of the pandemic, it, it may finally be at a tipping point for us to move in that direction. That's fascinating to me to think about that and to think about that these companies, these innovative companies that have been in other markets like the UK or Europe or wherever, being able to come in and introduce these solutions now to our industry, which is going through this transformation, that could cause like a big shift in the way uh, digital health and, and you know, is, is, grow- is, uh, is trending. You know, value-based medicine is and value-based care is a big piece of digital. And what they're trying to do is reduce, reduce cost and reduce total cost of care. And, and they can do it, maybe less people in some instances where you have the ability to communicate and interact with the patient um, digitally without, say, a physician there nagging them all the time. But, you know, whether it's your chat bots or your apps and tools and the reminders or the connected devices that can help support the patients, it's all in an effort to reduce the actual total cost of care. That is truly where digital needs to sit. But I'll be fascinated to see if the foreign uh, organizations can come over here and do as well. I think there's still a lot to learn about some of the more perverse incentives in U.S. healthcare. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's certainly just the education on the U.S. healthcare market, which is so crazy and so complicated. I think it baffles most of them. In the in the UK companies that I've talked to, there's a little bit of like, wait a minute, what? Like this, how does that work like that? That's so, <laughs> it's so strange in in comparison to what they're used to. So I think they're up. You know, there's a there's a wake up call there a little bit. But at the same time, they know how to manage large populations. Okay, so I heard a couple of things here, a couple of trends. Right, first of all, we talked about the overall patient patient engagement, and I would probably extend that to patient experience, those kind of health IT solutions, those digital health solutions are going to have an advantage in this space, uh, purely from an adoption perspective. And then in addition, this total cost of, of care, if we can implement these solutions to kind of lower the overall cost of care, that is also going to provide some competitive advantage. Is that where you see the investment dollars heading? RPM and patient engagement were the tools, right? RPM is your connected devices, your ability to monitor the patient remotely. And if you're doing that on a daily basis, there you go, there's there's engagement, right? If you can get the engagement, you know, part of the reason that I was so interested in the Mediterranean space was because my thought was this is the daily habitual life of the patient. The one thing they do is they put a pill on their tongue, right? To help with their chronic illness or their you know, behavioral health, whatever it may be. And that's about as close as you can get. And if the health systems or anybody wants to truly engage with the patient, can they do it on a daily habitual basis and not be overbearing? But if it were my brand or my health system or anything like that, I'd want to be 
the person that helped the patient on a daily basis and wasn't just this episodic, like I'll see you once a year or every once in a while. How do I get involved in your daily habitual life? To me, patient engagement and this connected devices and these connected communications go hand in hand. And I think that'll be the next place, like the health systems, if they really want to maintain some of the loyalty and some of this connectiveness to these patients, where they'll go. When I look at the apps and the tools that are out there, patients don't really engage in them, you know, and to download some of these apps, it's like, oh, geez, you have to be a hypochondriac to do it. Right, right. <laughs> there are some people that, you know, do that, but they're, they're again, those are people that are, you know, use these tools for chronic management of their care, not the average person. And, you know, I think that that whole tenuous relationship of engagement with the patient that's being strained because there's now all of these alternative solutions that are outside of health systems. And so that's a huge thing that we should be paying attention to. So much noise and then so much to even data security and privacy and what's happening with Google and cookies, the ability to even track and engage these patients. I think there you know, could be a shift. I think Apple is even playing a game with Google of people going back to the app store. I think apps fell out of favor for a while, but now they're back in favor when it comes to some of the healthcare stuff because of you know your ability to really always operate on um, Google and market retargeting or some of the identification of the patients, it's it's much easier with from data privacy and security. And what Apple does, you know, we can all turn off a little switch on our phones so we stop getting tracked. But if we're living in an app and we're habitually going in there and and updating it and things like that, that may actually become a new resource for information. But there's there's a lot that we have to be careful with, with the, the data privacy and security. I mean, I'm this, this whole surveillance capitalism piece is still definitely out there and healthcare is not a place for it. And every time I talk to you, it's like, I learned something new. Cause you're, I mean, like I said, you keep your finger on the pulse, you know, what's going on out there or, um, you know, I guess, cause you're in digital health, you're, you keep your finger in the pulse ox. Uh, that's a bad <laughs> joke. I'm sorry. I, I had to go there. And if people listening in want to learn a little bit more about you and maybe stay connected with you, what are some ways they can connect with you online? One of the best ways to connect with me online is Anne at Pipeline Genius. Com. You know, I've done uh, a lot of consulting through that. Certainly, please feel free to reach out to me on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, happy to have a conversation there as well. And always interested in what's going on and everything that's happening out there and keeping everybody kind of eye on the ball and where things are going. I like to kind of read the, the tea leaves and be able to at least uh, give some prophecy. Well, <laughs> I like that. Whether you listen or not, that's, you know, that's my Cassandra complex, I always say. <laughs> well, I, I like that a lot. I'm glad to have someone like you that reads the tea leaves for me that I can go to every so often to get my future told a little bit here. So, <laughs> And I really appreciate today's conversation. Really interesting. Thanks for your... I always love to be involved and work with you, Chris. So thank you for having me. Special thanks to Anne for coming on the show. I uh, certainly appreciate her time and expertise and willingness to, to jump in and chat a little bit. Really interesting topic and look forward to continuing to keep this top of mind. 
couple of plugs. The website, touchpoint.health. Again, mentioned that earlier where you can sign up for our uh, weekly newsletter. Also in that newsletter are some links to upcoming conferences and education. You know, we'll continue to kind of keep people uh, updated there on uh, anything coming out of the pipe. If you know of stuff that you'd like to add to the newsletter, like uh, events or webinars or things like that, reach out, let us know. We'll check into it and see if it's something that, uh, that we can get plugged in there. Let's do some recommendations. Reed, I got one that is a little bit, if you think about it, a little bit gross, but I think it's a very important one to have. You have Apple AirPods. You recommended them a couple of episodes ago, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I also have Air- Apple AirPods, as does my wife. I'm sure many of us do. Let's just say they get dirty. Is that fair to say? Yeah. They get kind of dirty with earwax and other things. So there's dirt. And sometimes you throw them in your pockets and the cases get linty and all those other things. So I've been trying to find different ways to uh, get them cleaned. And I found a really great cleaning kit okay. that you could get for under $10 off of Amazon that has a variety of things that can help you clean your Apple AirPods right. So first of all, they have little tiny Q-tips, but they're the size They're small enough to go way down into your little Apple AirPod case to clean out any kind of dust or lint that might get in there and also go around the edges, you know, where the lid closes together. Uh Yeah, I could clean that. Of course, they have brushes. They have microfiber cloths in here. They also have this little material that is kind of like a sticky material that you could actually press into that sort of that screen area of your AirPod. Uh Uh-huh. When, and it basically clings to every kind of dirt that's in there. And then you pull it out and it just cleans your AirPods like you would never believe. It's almost like new. Nice. I mean, although it's not the most attractive thing to think about, but when you have an Apple AirPod and you want to get them cleaned, the, the recommended uh, cleaner that I would suggest that you get is by a company. The brand is called AOC, A-O-C-I-I. It's an AirPod cleaning kit. And by the way, you can not only clean your Apple AirPods, the little microfibers and the little tiny cleaning kits can also go into your little USB area where you might get some lint on your phone and clean that out as well. So like I said, it's under $10. It's available on Amazon. And I highly recommend it. Essential to have. That's my recommendation. There you go. Well, I will recommend a podcast called Reply All. This is on the Gimlet Network, gimletmedia.com. Reply All, and as they put it, a podcast about the internet. This is actually an unfailing original exploration of modern life and how to survive it. That's from The Guardian. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Some of my favorite episodes that they do is called uh, Super Tech Support. And so somebody like calls in or they get like feedback from somebody that can't figure out why something's happening. It's usually something on the internet or like, why am I getting this same spam call over and over again or whatever? And they troubleshoot this. It's pretty fun. It's kind of neat. You know, it's nothing terribly life changing, but it's it's a fun kind of drive time. You know, listen to some stories. It's kind of like a This American Life, but just about the internet, basically. So Reply All by Gimlet Media. That's a really good podcast. I listen to that off and on for many, many years. Good recommendation, Reed. Yeah. Here is the deal. Uh, One, I want to thank you for listening. Two, I want to point out the website, touchpoint.health, and the TPS report. Uh, Certainly would love, three, to get some feedback from you. So reach out to Chris or I on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, or your medium of choice, uh, and let us know how we're doing, topic we should cover, somebody we should interview, et cetera. 
And boy, we'd love to have you back next week. So for uh, Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you then. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.